we were supposed to correct that. And I'm, in my mind, I'm like, well, we're going to do that in a couple weeks. And then this morning, uh, when those words were given, great words, and I want to thank you ladies for sharing, um, but we have to make sure that we uh, help everyone to hear it. Now, that said, some of you might be sitting there saying, amen, uh, there are front rows open. And so I promise you, you'll hear better in the front when people give a word. And so, um, you know, I take full and utter responsibility for not taking the steps I needed to take sooner. But see how as human beings, we can blame someone else. And we don't actually take the steps to fix it ourselves. You hear what I'm saying? Um, And so don't just, you know, you can put it on me if you want, but you won't grow from that. So I take responsibility. We're going to fix that. Uh, I promise you it's a part of the series in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that we're going to actually look at the practical way to do that and fix that. And uh, we're going to start going forward. And, and what I shared today, if you feel that you have a word from the Lord and you cannot project loud enough, um, please come to me and we'll get you a microphone and you can project it. And there are those that say, well, but then I'll lose what the Lord has to say. Well, if you lose it, then it wasn't the Lord. So that's okay. Um, but if it's the Lord, it'll still be with you when you get a microphone. And so um, I encourage you to do that. Now, sometimes for some of you, you have a voice that carries, and that's great. But sometimes it's just turning and facing the congregation. Um, because if you're in the second row and you're given a word, we all hear it, and it's great. But they need to hear it too. So just sometimes turning around and projecting your voice that way is all you need to do too. So uh, very practical things, but uh, how many of you know we serve a practical God? Amen. All right, we're going to be... In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, well, let's go ahead and dismiss our kids. Uh, Kids can meet their teachers out in the hallway for their class. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, I didn't last week mention to you that when I began this series that we started last week called Why Not Women, um, the Lord really stirred my heart for this last summer. We were on a staycation where you take days off, but you don't go anywhere, and you just stay around the home, and you relax with your family, and you do some projects that you've been working on, Um, and we were doing that, and so on a Sunday morning, because we were on a staycation, and uh, it's, you know, as pastor, I can't just come and sit in our pew and uh, just receive from the Lord, okay? I I, I would love that, but there are questions and things that people ask, and so um, there's a responsibility. So we went to a church, uh, James River Church, and uh, Pastor Jeff was in a series on women in ministry. And uh, after the service, I'm like, dude, you need to send me your sermons. I want to hear the whole thing. Because I I really feel like while you were speaking today, the Lord was like, you need to to do this too. And so a lot of my notes have come from his study. And a lot of them have come from a book uh, that I'm going to reference today in this message called Why Not Women? And uh, now that said, there those people have written stuff, but I have taken the time to, number one, double check what they've said. I'm not just going to read in a book where someone says, this is what this word means. I'm going to go to my study library and I'm going to make sure they're right. I'm not going to believe what they said. It's like the Bereans in the, uh, the New Testament. They heard what Paul said and then they studied to make sure it was accurate. You catch that? So I've, st- I've done my homework on this too, but there's this sense that the scripture teaches us that women should not be involved in ministry. And so if we put them in ministry in these certain ways, we're disregarding the word of God. And we don't want to give that impression. And so I want you to be assured that that's, number one, not what the word of God teaches. And number two, we don't disregard the word of God for the sake of our own tradition. 
If the word of God clearly says women should not be in ministry, I don't care what the culture of the United States of America is, we abide by the word of God. Now, I don't believe that's what the word says, and so we're trying to correct that, and we're looking at three passages of scripture in particular, one from 1 Timothy, one from 1 Corinthians 11, and this one from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Of those three passages to me, this one that we're going to deal with today is the easiest to debunk. Um, this is the, the easiest one, and I don't think you're going to have a hard time receiving what uh, this passage is saying. Uh, in the weeks ahead, especially next week, uh, for some of you, especially for us men, we're going to have a hard time maybe wrapping our mind around it, and he may be even swallowing some of the stuff that I'm going to say. But I want you, as we go through this, to keep in mind a couple uh, foundational points. When we take a scripture that's difficult to receive, we have to study it out, and we have to look at it within the context of the whole Bible. That's what we did last week. We went through the entire scripture and looked at how women were viewed in the word of God from beginning to end. We looked at what God's foundation for women ministering to other people was. And so that we can now take these scriptures and apply it in that context. So if you missed last week's message, you need to listen to that message on our podcast so you can frame what I'm going to say today in the context of that passage, and in that, that message. And so that makes a difference. We have to understand that. We also have to understand the culture and language of the Bible. While the Word of God is completely infallible, meaning it is without error, the men and women who have translated the Bible are not without error. And so errors have been made in translation that have been corrected over the years. Because we, we, we learn something about, and part of it is, uh, as Christians, we have been so disenfranchised from the Jewish people. We have pushed the Jewish people away at times. And so, because they, in our minds, crucify the Lord, and in our minds are, you know, in error. And, and so, we don't learn from them. And if we would have learned from them, we would understand their culture a whole lot more. And then there are certain passages of Scripture that would make more sense to us because of that. So the revival of it, the, the Jews and the Christians starting to come together has brought a little clarification to some passages that we didn't understand before. And so the reason that um, if you have a, a Bible app, the reason that sometimes your Bible app, NIV, is different than your printed NIV is because we're constantly making changes to correct things that we didn't understand before. That's why whenever there is a second printing or a third printing of the word, now you say, well, well, Pastor Tom, then how can we trust the word? Well, th we're talking about a few passages of scripture, okay? Most of the scripture is very clear and straightforward. These passages that we're looking at today and in the next couple of weeks are some of those that are just difficult to understand, and they really need us to dig into them to understand them, and so that's what we want to do. I believe as you look at these difficult passages, and you look at them in the, the view of what the entirety of the Bible teaches, that what we have come to as a conclusion, uh, as a church, makes the most sense. Now, I will not say beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am 100% right. I believe this makes the most sense. I believe our salvation doesn't hang in the balance based upon these scriptures. So we focus on the cross and we focus on Christ crucified. And these things that are peripheral uh, things, we can agree with other believers that don't see them eye to eye with us. And so I'm trying to be careful not to mock other denominations that don't see these things the way we do. And uh, I want to I I handle these things with honor. And so... 
Even Jesus himself um, took questions that he was asked and he applied it to the entire scripture. In Matthew chapter 19, and we're gonna get to 1 Corinthians in a second, but Matthew chapter 19, it says that some Pharisees come and try to trap Jesus with a question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, culturally, in this day, wives were not allowed to divorce their husbands. There was no provision for that, okay? But men were allowed to divorce their wives if they deemed them to be unfaithful. And there were certain tests that they could do to prove whether or not their wife would be unfaithful. And then the priest could agree or disagree and they would be unfaithful and they would be allowed to to write them a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, haven't you read the scriptures? Notice he doesn't say, have you read the law? He could have said that. What does he say? Have you read the scriptures? And then Jesus goes back pre-law. We talked about this last week. From the beginning, God made them male and female. He said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. That is a profound statement in this culture that Jesus is speaking to. Because in this day, it wasn't the man that left his father and mother, it was the woman. The man did not take the initiative to separate himself from his identity, from his father's household in order to be united with his wife. She did that. So Jesus is undercutting what they have been taught through the years. He's undercutting their culture and he's saying, go back to the beginning. Look at how God designed this from the beginning. And since they're no longer two, they're united into one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now that word one is a singular compound word where we would use it to refer to like a cluster of grapes as being a single grape. The grapes, hand me the grapes. It's singular grapes because they're in a cluster, but they're several grapes. Now, so the two are united into one. No longer able to separate. I know we could pull a grape off the cluster, but not able to separate. They were very familiar with this word because they understood this concept. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Same Hebrew word. Jesus is, is immediately, they're making the connection. The same way that the Godhead relates to each other, husbands and wives now relate to each other. They're one. And we see it in their response. So he says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. Unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Now the funny thing is, is this is how women have been treated throughout the, the, the entire course of history. So it would have been better for them not to marry all the way up to this point. But when Jesus turns the tables and he kind of levels the playing field and says women and men should be treated equally in this idea of divorce and marriage and separating yourselves from your family and becoming one, it's not just about women doing this. Men should do it too. They're like, well, then it's better not to marry. That doesn't seem advantageous for us as men. You catching this? And Jesus says, Uh, Not everyone can accept this statement, only those whom God helps. And we take that to mean, you know, well, maybe you shouldn't get married. No, you should get married, but you should do it the way God designed from the beginning. And God will help you to be able to do that and help him them that he needed to do. So we want to look at the whole scripture when we have these questions that we don't understand. And the third thing I think we need to keep in mind is we have to fight the curse. 
We talked about this a little bit last week, but just let me remind you, as women, the, the curse that was pronounced over us, as, uh, over you as women, was the desire to break free from your, your husband, to break free from men. And the scriptures now tell our, our women, submit yourselves to your husband. Now, I believe the scriptures also say submit to one another, and so we'll talk about that later, but because the curse is about you wanting to break free, I believe the scripture says submit yourself to your husband. For men, what did the curse say to us? We will rule over our wives. And why will we rule over them? Because they're physically weaker. That's what the scripture tells us. And because of that, we're able to dominate women. Not so many anymore. What does the scripture now tell us? Treat your wives with respect as an equal partner in God's love. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. No longer seek to dominate and control her. Love her. Is it? We're really going to unpack this next week, why the scripture says one thing to one and one thing to the other. I believe it has everything to do with the curse. And you might stop and say, well, you know, what does this have to do with anything? I believe this has a lot to do with revival. In 2 Kings chapter 22, Josiah finds the book of the law. Well, he doesn't find it. Someone else finds it and brings it to him as the king. They read it and they realize we're not doing what the law says. We're not being true to the word of the Lord. So he commits himself. He reads the law to everyone. He commits himself. We're going to start doing things the Lord's way. And the Lord blesses it and brings a national revival. In these areas, I don't know that we've been doing what the Lord has told us to do. We have not been honoring each other the way the Lord says, I want you to honor each other. And as we bring our lives into alignment with what the truth of God's word reveals, I think that's going to bring about revival. So that's what I think we're doing. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and by the way, this is a process. The woman's lib movement that swept through the United States, uh, I don't think is the right response. I'm not trying to give you these, these messages, ladies, so that you can rise up with power and break free from the bondages of uh, uh, tyranny, and uh, that's not what this is about. This is about little by little tearing down the, the barriers and the walls and learning and growing and walking in freedom. We don't fight for the freedom. We don't fight for our rights. I'm not trying to teach you to fight, ladies, for your rights. I'm teaching you to walk in freedom. And so even if men still continue to put bondage on you, you can walk in freedom. You don't have to buy into that bondage. Nor do you have to raise your voice and fight against it. Okay? That's not the right response either. It's, so it's little by little. Slavery is another, uh, another one of these points. For years, we, used, we said that it was okay to have slaves because the scripture never taught us that you, we should end slavery. Literally, churches taught that at one point. Why did we change? Because we realized that the, the nature of scripture, the nature of the gospel undercuts that. When it starts telling us the way that we're supposed to treat other human beings, that, that cuts at the nature of slavery. And so there's no way to promote slavery and be true to the word of God. So even if the word of God doesn't say, thou shalt not have slaves, we understand that the word of God says, we're no longer to relate to each other that way. And so we break that off and we start living. But it was a process and little by little that took place. Unfortunately for for us as a country, it took the civil war to do that, which uh, was a bloodbath. If only we could have opened our hearts to the scripture and allowed the Lord to do it the right way. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation that God has given, one will speak in tongues, another will interpret what was said, 
But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak it one at a time. Someone must interpret what they say. But if no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church, in your church meeting, and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy. Let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone is prophesying and another person receives revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak one after another so everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive just as the law says. If they have questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in the church meetings. Or do you think God's word originated with you, Corinthians? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? If you claim to be a prophet or think you are spiritual, you should recognize that what I'm saying is a command from the Lord himself. But if you do not recognize this, you yourself will not be recognized. So my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forget bid speaking in tongues. Be sure that everything is done properly and in order. What just cracks me up about this passage of scripture is the way that the translator allows his words to be contradictory. You catching it? At the beginning, he says, brothers or sisters, when you come together, brothers and sisters, when you come together, everyone has a something, a song, teaching, special revelation, speak in tongues. In the middle, he says, women should be silent in the church meetings. Then at the end, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Does anyone else see the glaring contradiction here? So what in the world is actually taking place? And how can we possibly translate this and be okay with that translation? Something has got to give. Either it's not brothers and sisters or it's not women be silent in the church. But for years, we've allowed this to take place and we don't figure out what's going on here. And it's important that we do. So first of all, if Paul is stating that women should not minister publicly, then what he has taught in 1 Corinthians 11, where we're going to look at that next week, where he has taught women and men how to dress appropriately to minister publicly, when he is dealing with that, why is he bothering to do that? If this really means women should never minister publicly, he has wasted his time and contradicted himself by teaching them how to dress appropriately when they minister publicly. So I don't believe he could be saying that. I believe there's got to be more to this story if that's what he told us back there. I believe as we look at the context, Paul is trying to correct ministry in the body of Christ. That's what he's doing in this entire context. He is taking the gifts of the Spirit and how they operate. He is taking the individual groups and how they're operating, and he's bringing correction. He's not trying to prohibit anyone from ministering. In fact, he gives us words in this passage like, do not forbid people to speak in tongues. But he's clearly said, when you speak in tongues, do it certain ways. It's not just do whatever you want. Don't be excessive. Here's the appropriate way. But don't forbid it altogether. Correct it. So he's not trying to get people to stop doing something. He's trying to correct it. The same with prophecy and the same with women. If we take women out of this passage and we treat them differently than those who are speaking in tongues, those who are prophesying, I believe we're doing violence to this text. 
Because the grammatical structure of this text does not allow us to do that. He is not lumping two of these together and one of them separate. They are all lumped together and you're going to see it. We're going to bore you to death showing you that. No, you're not going to be bored, I promise you. Punctuation is important. Okay, the context is important. The, con- the, the, the context of this is correction. But punctuation is important. Greek manuscripts did not have punctuation. So it is now up to the translators to find the punctuation. And it is not uncommon for three or four verses in our translations to be one Greek sentence. But our translators thought that it would be better to break it into sections so that it's easier for us to understand. Well, there's a lot of differences about where periods should be, where commas should be, and where you decide to put a period changes everything. And we're going to show you that here in just a second. In fact, I'll show you now. There, I've already showed you. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The top is the New Living Translation. This is what we read together. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's people. See the comma and then the period. Women should be silent during the church meetings, period. It is not proper for them to speak, period. They should be submissive, just as the law says. Now look at the Amplified Version. I used to love the Amplified Version, but I got very angry at the Amplified Version this week, and I'll show you why. For he, who is the source of their prophesying, is not a God of confusion and disorder, but a God of peace and order, period. As is the practice in all of the churches of the saints of God's people, comma, the women should keep quiet in the churches. See how a period changes everything. I mean, it went from God being a God of order in all the churches to women are silent in all the churches, which isn't the case. We've already seen in other new passages of scriptures that women are actually talking in the church. Women are actually ministering in the church. And so as a translator, there is absolutely no way I can put a period there and go to sleep at night. That's not even the worst part. I actually, Heather was in here vacuuming this week and I I yelled, I'm like, come on! The women should be quiet in the churches. They're not authorized to speak but should take a secondary and subordinate place just as the law also says, Genesis 3.16. One of the things I love about the Amplified is they put in parentheses the scripture verse that it's referring to. Can I tell you something? Genesis 3.16 is not the law. The only place that they have to refer back to in the Old Testament to correspond with what the Apostle Paul seems to be saying here is Genesis 3.16. We've already covered, that's not the law, that's the curse. And the Apostle Paul, who was a well-educated Jewish person, would not have called what God said in Genesis chapter 3 the law. He would have chosen a different word. And so the fact that they even used that verse, that got me a little riled up. I'm like, that's wrong. And I'm going to prove it to you as we we keep going through this. So I don't think Paul is making a universal statement about how women should or should not minister in the church. He's making a universal statement about God being a God of order in all the churches. And I'll tell you why that's important here in a little bit too. Another thing to pay attention to is the structure in the original Greek. The structure of this passage uses two different types of literary device. Keeping in mind, Paul is a very educated man. He's not writing a letter in a haphazard way. He's writing a letter to bring instruction to the body of Christ. So it's not going to be like a letter like you and I, you know, hey, how are you doing today? Well, today I had mashed potatoes. And, uh, you know, he's not Facebooking. He's writing them a thorough discourse of what's wrong in the church. And so 
when the Apostle Paul's doing this, he's using what's called particularization. What that means is he's taking an idea and he's presenting the idea and then he's giving examples of that idea and how that works out. He's also using what's called a chiasm. A chiasm in, in Greek language is where you take an argument, if you will, and you apply it to position A, position B, position C, and then you reverse it and go back to position C, B, A. Sort of like this. His main idea in verses 26, 33, and 40 is that God is a God of order. So the chaos that exists in the Corinthian church is not acceptable. It's not building each other up. It's not edifying what God wants to do. It's chaotic. It's not okay. Three times he repeats that main idea. In the midst of it, he applies that to those who are speaking in tongues. Then he applies that B to those who are prophesying. Then he applies that C to the women. And then he comes back through C, women, B, prophets, a, tongues. And that's the literary structure. As you read through that passage, you can see that structure. And now he's talking to two different groups at the same time. There is one group that says, when the Spirit comes, everything goes. You just do whatever, whatever. There's freedom, freedom. Jesus brought us freedom. Just worship, however. Paul addresses that in the first group, A, B, C. It's not just however. God is a God of order. Group two says, because of the chaos, let's just stop it all. It's not worth it. It's not worth the mess. Paul says, oh, indeed, it is worth the mess. And so when he goes back through CBA, he's addressing those that say, don't do it at all. That's where he gives us the thing, don't forbid speaking in tongues. For those of you that think it's whatever rules, no. Two or three people speak in tongues, and that's it. For those of you that think whatever, no, this isn't how it happens. And then for those of you that think we should just forbid tongues altogether, no. And so the literary structure that he has clearly points to what he's saying. The last thing, punctuation structure-wise, let me tell you this. There's a little Greek word that's actually just one little letter. And it's what's called an expletive of disassociation. An expletive of disassociation. Meaning, um, what there are times that Paul is, it's hard for the translators to decide whether he's saying an idea or whether he's quoting someone. When he's quoting someone, he will, if, it's a, if it's something that's, um, that he's not in agreement with, he'll throw in this article of disassociation to show that. Half of the time it's translated and half of the time it's just ignored. It's in the Greek text. But some translators just don't translate it because it, it changes the meaning. I mean, I can't tell you why they don't translate it, but I want to know why they don't translate it. This character of disassociation, for us, in our language, the best translation would be something like, what? Huh? Nonsense. I mean, that's the type of thing that this word would be used for. And so, he uses it 14 times in 1 Corinthians alone. 14 times. How many of you know there was a whole lot of chaos in the Corinthian church? And he is constantly referring to things that they have said and then saying, what? Nonsense. I'll show you a couple of them. Some of them get translated in our English Bibles and some of them don't. 1 Corinthians 1.13, has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized into the name of Paul? Of course not. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Don't you realize your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, join it to a prostitute? Never. 1 Corinthians 10. 
You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You can't eat at the Lord's table and the, the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we're stronger than he is? See how he does it? When, and then he asks questions. Okay? Pay attention to that. What? And then he asks two questions. 1 Corinthians 11. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry, others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? See how he uses it? Now the funny thing is, is he uses it two times. In 1 Corinthians 14, 33 and 34. And the only translations that translate it use the word or. Seems like it does something a little weird there. Something a little shady. So let's look at it. Now keep in mind, we have been going to church for a long time, and for 2,000 years, churches have been very orderly. I mean, except for a few charismatic churches that, you know, chaos ensues, most of us know you take turns. Most of us know that um, if you have a song to sing, that you, you ask the, the pastor or the music pastor to sing, and then they schedule you and you sing. You don't just come one Sunday and just, you know, in the middle of worship, come up and say, the Lord has given me a song to sing. Go ahead, start. We don't do that, do we? We know there's order. We know there's structure. So when we look at this passage, we're like, well, you know, uh, God is a God of order. That doesn't really do a lot for us. But the Corinthian church wasn't like that. Many of these people have come out of pagan, religion, pagan religions. Pagan religions, the more chaos and the more noise there was, the more anointed it was. The more that the gods were pleased. Remember the prophets of Baal back in the Old Testament and the frenzy they worked themselves into. Why? Because Baal's not responding, but what pleases him is if we, we do crazier stuff, if we cut ourselves, if we scream with high shrieks, if we do all of these, because God, that's how we're going to get God to respond. That's what they've come out of. And so Paul comes to this church and says, you know, this is not a false god. Our God is a God of order. You can take your turns. You don't have to just, just be louder than the next guy. You don't have to try to convince God to do something by your, your loudness and your chaos. God wants you to do it in a way that's orderly and structured so that everyone hears, everyone benefits, and the whole body's built up. That's what this entire passage of Scripture is talking about. Learning how to minister appropriately in a corporate worship setting. We need to participate in the worship service. Everyone, he says that everyone has something to offer in the corporate worship service, but do it orderly. Do it in a structured way. Do it in a way that honors the other person and do it in a way that honors the Lord and brings that. And he illustrates that in these three examples. The tongues, the prophets, and the women. We'll get to why he's singling out the women in just a second. Don't worry. But Paul's goal, again, is not to prohibit participation. In, on the contrary, he wants everyone to participate, but he wants to do it in the right way. So let's look specifically at the women, okay? Women, this is from the New Living Translation, should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have questions, they should ask their husbands at home. Now, is it time for a period or a comma? For it is improper for women to speak in the church meetings. I believe it's time for a period. Before that, some translators believe it's time for a comma. Then Paul puts in his little Greek word, nonsense. Look at the questions. Or do you think God's word originated with you Corinthians? 
Same word. What? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? Just like in all of the passages we looked at, he gives this word, this little Greek word. They don't translate it. The parentheses are me. Most translations do not throw this in there, even though the, it's the exact same text from other places in 1 Corinthians. The same structure. Put that word in there. Ask a question. Challenge the thought process. You catching this? This is what this passage is saying. He's talking to each of these three groups, and he tells, I emphasized it, hopefully you caught that while we read it, he tells each of those three groups to be silent. The group that was speaking in tongues chaotically, be silent. Not don't do it at all, but stop doing it chaotically, be silent. Then he says to the prophets, be silent. If one person gets up and speaks and, and then you get a revelation and stand up, the first one, be silent. Not saying be silent, never, ever, ever, ever speak, but be silent, correct it. So then when he comes to women and he tells women to be silent, we would assume by the structure he's saying the same thing to women. Not a overarching, be silent at all times, again, doing violence to the text. He's taking each of these three and he's applying be silent to those specific sections. So why correct the women alone? The interesting thing is, is that word for be silent for the women is not the word for, for preach. It's not the word for teach. It's, he could have used any word, but the word he used was a generic term that focused more on the sound and not the message. Literally at times being translated as chatter. Women stop chattering in the church. <laughs> Sorry, women, maybe this isn't going to get any better for you or not. Because <laughs> women, you, you like to talk, don't you? I mean, I mean, when you hear something in church, you've got to discuss it with your girlfriend right away. Hey, did you hear that? What you, Paul says you're disrupting the service with this type of thing. Stop. So what were they doing? Why was he correcting them? overwhelmingly, up until this point, culturally, women were uneducated, completely uneducated. In most of the churches, men and women did not sit together still in the body of Christ, okay? Whenever we liberate a nation that's in captivity, we don't just go in and overthrow the dictator and then say, see ya, good luck, do it. No, you gotta teach those people how to walk in freedom. And it's little by little, it's step by step. And sometimes we get frustrated and we're like, why are we involved in liberating all these nations? Well, because we feel that that's our calling as a country. Whether you agree or disagree, I don't know, but that's what we felt like. And so we stepped in, we liberate these people, but we can't just leave them, we gotta teach them. And that's what's taking place here. The women are being liberated, but it's not like these uneducated women are able to just come up to the table and play right away, boom. They need to be taught. They need to be trained. There's going to be some things that are done right and some things that are done wrong. And so they're being disruptive. And part of it is they're hearing things in the service and they don't understand it because they're uneducated. And so they're going to ask their husbands or they're going to ask someone near them and they're disrupting the service. And so Paul says, don't disrupt the service. You should ask your own husband at home. Now, that may sound like demeaning, but up until this point, the husband had no desire, no, no uh, command to teach his wife anything. He didn't have to educate her. She's his property. 
And Paul says, if the woman doesn't understand something, husbands, educate her at home. He is actually supporting the woman's right to learn in the home. That's flying in the face of everything culturally these guys have ever thought or heard. This is a, just a crazy thought that the Apostle Paul is saying. It's a radical culture shift. Husbands, teach your wives at home. He's not saying wives don't learn, wives don't speak. He's saying your speech is disruptive. Don't disrupt the service. If you have a question, ask your husband at home. And as you learn and grow, you're going to be able to participate in the service. You're here. Now, the other thing is, culturally, these women come out of pagan worship. Pagan women, even in pagan worship, were not allowed to worship the gods. They weren't allowed to, to be participants. The only way they could participate is, one, sexually, or two, in high-pitched shrills and screams. I don't know if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel and watched pagan women worship and just the literally ear-piercing piercing screams, the guttural sounds that they would make. And it's very possible these women coming out of pagan religions would feel like the only way they can participate in the worship of God is the same way they used to, the way women of all time have ever been able to participate. And they're just shrilling at the top of their lungs. And Paul's like, hey, we don't need to do that. We serve a God of order. And your shrill is doing nothing but annoying people. You catching me? God is a God of order. So what about submission? He's, I mean, he tells the women, be submissive. Because the law says to be submissive. I mean, be submissive. Well, who's he saying to be submissive to? Because he doesn't give a direct object in the Greek. He just says, women, be submissive, just as the law says. No direct object. No, women, be submissive to... And we have taken it because the next statement is about husbands. Oh, that's what he means. Be submissive to your husband. <laughs> that's not proper grammar. To find your direct object after the statement, you've got to find your direct object before the statement. There's three options before the statement. One, submit to the church leadership because they're the ones that are supposed to help structure and order these services. So if you've got something to say, women, be submissive to them. Or God because God is in the previous, God is the God of order, so be submissive to God and God's order, or just yourself. In other words, be self-controlled. You don't have to just shrill and do something crazy. Be self-controlled. Don't chatter. Don't do these weird things that you used to do. Be in order. And any one of those direct objects would work and would absolutely fit the context and would absolutely fit the teaching of Scripture about women. Every single one of them. But if we want to take it and make it about men, I think we do disservice to what the Scripture is actually saying. So, the other key thing. Oh, I can't forget this. Did you know that nowhere in the Old Testament law does it say, wives, submit to your husbands? Nowhere. Nowhere. It never says it. From the mouth of God given to Moses, no Scripture says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That's why the Amplified Version, the only thing they can reference is Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, which I firmly believe is not the law. It's not even what God is saying, here's my idea for what's about to happen. This is God saying, here's the result of the curse. So if it says women be submissive, just as the law says, who are they to be submissive to? Well, the law says be submissive to God. The law says be submissive to yourself or be self-controlled. 
The law says, be submissive to those that are leaders or authorities. Submit to Moses, submit to the high priest. All three of those fit. But never does it say, wives submit to husbands. See, in essence, here's what I think the passage is saying. This is a quote from the book, Why Not Women, um, by, uh, let me look at the name here, Lauren Cunningham, David Hamilton. This is what they write. He's telling the women, you've been accepted as full partners in the gospel. You've been given the privilege to minister through prayer and prophecy. In the past, you were excluded from participation in the synagogues and in the Greek and Roman temples, but now the double standard is over. You have new freedom in Christ, however... We expect the same thing from you that we expect from the men. You're free to minister, but you must do so responsibly. Stop ministering in a disorderly, disruptive, discourteous, insubordinate way. Your participation must be done in an orderly way, submitting to God so that your ministry edifies the whole body of Christ. That's what I see the passage saying. Now, again, these Greek words at the end. Remember our sentence structure where A, B, C, C, B, A. Correct the abuse of tongues, correct the abuse of prophets, correct the abuse of women, and then reverse it, correct the never at all CBA. Well, how do we see Paul saying, because when Paul makes the statement, it is improper or it is disgraceful for women, or shameful is another word that's translated, for women to speak in church meetings. I, have, I believe there's a period right before that, so that's a statement. Many Bible translations also make that a period, and they make that a single statement. So what Paul is saying is it's improper for women to speak in the church meetings. It's shameful. Is that what Paul's saying? No. Because remember our little Greek word friend? That nonsense... What? I think Paul is referencing the Greek culture, the Jewish culture. I think Paul's referencing what people in the Corinthian church were saying. It's shameful for a woman to speak. The Jewish writings, the rabbis, literally taught a woman's voice is sensual. So a woman shouldn't speak because even just her voice stirs up sexual desire in men. Get some self control. Seriously? Everything is about. Just from the beginning of the curse, you see it. Women are just beaten down. Don't talk. Don't do this. It's all your fault. Uh, I'm going to rule over you. Blah, 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 blah. And what Paul is saying is, you're saying it's improper for women to speak or shameful or disgraceful for women to speak in church meetings. If he's saying that, he's contradicting himself. If that's his opinion, he's contradicting 1 Corinthians 11. He's contradicting Acts chapter 2 where your sons and daughters will prophesy. He's contradicting himself and the women he commissioned in in Romans chapter 16 or commended in Romans chapter 16. Everything we talked about last week, he's, he's going against it. But I don't think the Greek text goes against it because those little Greek words that are in there explain what Paul's doing. He's saying, you guys are saying that women shouldn't speak at all. I mean, it's just not worth it. Their, their voice is shameful. It's disgraceful. He says, nonsense. Do you think the, words, the word of God originated with you Corinthians? What? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? In other words, he's saying, the women need to be taught how to come up to the table with the men. It's not about them being silent in the church. So what's funny is, I think the Apostle Paul here is actually empowering women in ministry, teaching them how to do it correctly, and we have so twisted it in the body of Christ that we're actually using it to put women in a corner. And we've done disservice to the Word of God and what the Apostle Paul is saying. So should women be quiet in church? No. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. 
I don't think that's what the Word of God says. And I think that translation of that passage of Scripture fits completely with everything we covered last week when we looked at the, the history of women in the Word of God. I think it's consistent with every single thing we packed, unpacked last week. I think when you look at the context, when you look at the structure, and you may have nodded off a little bit during the, the whole English grammar structure thing, but luckily we've recorded it, so you can just go back and listen again. Don't take my word for it. Study it for yourself. Study it for yourself. I dare you to study it for yourself. Find out what these passages are saying and make sense of them so that we don't put women in a bondage that the word of God never meant them to be in. They are full partners with us in the body of Christ and should have the chance to exercise their God-given gifts in a worship service. I said this last week and I'll say it again. Oddly, many people will take these difficult scriptures that women shouldn't be able to do and they'll, they'll, they'll dumb them down. You know, where, well, women just can't teach. They can't be the preacher. But they can be a worship leader no, that you can't do that. I mean, these passages are either saying women should be silent. I mean, you can't culturally try to appease to women. So if you're going to be true to your version of Scripture, you've got to understand it. And what I think we've done is we've tried to soften it a little bit and say, well, it probably doesn't. Well, if we would look intently, we would see that it doesn't say any of that. But instead, we try to have our cake and eat it too. Well, maybe women could just have a little role in the church. No, women should have whatever role God ordains them to have. And if that's the pastor of a church, so be it. And don't worry, we'll come to 1 Timothy. Because I don't think that's what Paul says in 1 Timothy either. So I want us to stop disqualifying women for ministry that God has qualified them for. Amen? All right, let's stand together. We've, we're halfway through this series on women in ministry. We've got two other passages we're going to look at. Next week, we're going to look at whether or not our women should wear head coverings. And we're going to look at what, what Paul is talking about when he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Um, pray a lot this week. Not just for yourselves, but pray for me. Um, because what I don't want to do and what I've tried to pray as I've gone through this whole series is I don't want to make the word say something. So if there is something that I'm studying that doesn't fit my little box, I don't want to try to make it fit. Okay? I want the word to speak to us. And so as we walk through this process, I want you to pray for me and I want you to pray for you because every one of you have uh, the same kind of mindsets and the same kind of cultural biases that I have. And I want us to hear the word of God for what it is and what it says. And I want us to receive it in a humble way. I don't want us to become the church that stands up for women's rights. Okay? I just want us to be the church that hears the word of God, teaches it, and lets people walk in freedom. Okay? And so, let's pray that. And so, Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the teaching that you provide us from your word. Forgive us for any way that we have done disservice to you, the truth of your word. Forgive us for imposing our ideas, our opinions, our culture on your word. God, we see the, the glaring things even today in this passage of scripture that go against what we've translated in our own English Bibles. Father, help us to make sense of this. Help us to apply good biblical 
study habits to this word, just like the Bereans. God, help us to study it. Help us to look at it in the context of the entire book. Help us to look at it in the context of the passage that it's written. Help us to understand, God, even the, the punctuation and those English things that sometimes we don't even understand in our own language. Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth. Most importantly, as you set us free from these wrong mindsets, teach us how to walk in truth. Not in an arrogant way, trying to hold it over others, but God, in a humble way, where we actually would have a platform to be able to help others find that same freedom. Help us to walk in humility, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Man, thank you for being here. God bless you as you go today. And uh, don't forget next week, ladies, bring your head coverings. <laughs> Just kidding.